You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shambo. I'm your host, Tom Shambo. Thank you for listening. If you're a new listener to the War Dogs Podcast, welcome. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when a new episode is posted. Today, we're speaking to Tim Sparks. Tim served in the United States Air Force as a sentry dog handler in Vietnam from 1969 to 1970. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Okay, uh, my name is Timothy Sparks. Um, I served... um, in the United States Air Force. And it was very interesting how I got involved in that. Um, Right after I graduated high school, my parents um, gave me a bus ticket to Cincinnati, Ohio from Oxnard, California. And uh, my grandmother took me on my, uh, my 18th birthday, downtown Cincinnati, and she introduced me to my first cousin who was an Air Force recruiter. And um, this was all prepared. Um, they knew about my passion for drawing and especially like mechanical drawing. So he had all these manuals all laid out that if you, know, if you join the Air Force, you knew you're gonna be working drawing engine parts and, and cannon parts and all these you know, cool things. You know? And it was like, okay. So I signed up, joined right then and then. And then in September, they sent me to San Antonio. And um, I thought I was going to go to a school, but when everybody got their orders at the end, I was in casual. So I go, okay. And the guy I went to casual with from my basic unit um, was going to language school. And then he went and I go, okay, my school's coming up. I'm going to go to a tech school. And then I got orders. Direct duty assignment, Pease Air Force Base, New Hampshire, OJT security policeman. And it was um, December (laughs) and a California boy got sent to New Hampshire for one of the worst winters they had in in a century. So one time they, um, when I was walking around a B-52, I got rumor that they were wanting canine handlers. So I went to my flight chief, Sergeant, uh, Tech Sergeant Fink and he was my flight chief at the time. And he let me go over to the canine and they had me walk the gauntlet, which was like a kennel row. And all these dogs were just trying to eat me coming down. And they walked me to this one dog and they said, they gave me a leash and said, go in there. And so I did. And that was my dog. And so I was just an OJT dog handler. And they just told me the rules, gave me, gave me a, a 38 and stuck me up on a post walking around uh, the perimeter of the 52 area. So anyway, so then the traveling school came up during the summer. And uh, so then I got my official A and I actually matched the written 100 word uh, question test, which was really cool. And actually got the base commander giving me an award. It was kind of cool. Yeah. So um, 
having met some of the guys who had come back from Vietnam, some of the buck sergeants, and this one particular one took me under his wing and uh, he handled a dog named Mooseheart. Now I understand one of our boys, uh, Carl Adams had him at one time or a dog named that. I can't imagine there being another. Anyway, and he, he convinced me that, you know, I should go to Vietnam and I did, I signed up. And um, instead of Vietnam, they sent me to Karat, Thailand um, on this thing called Operation Palace Lion. And there was, um, I think about 20 something of us and they sent us directly to Karat from Kelly Air Force Base, Texas. And um, we had a sentry dog that we picked to go through. My first dog was named King at this replacement course that I had. And he had a big cyst on his chest. And just before we were gonna ship out, they said, no, you can't take this dog. You gotta get another one. And so they go, oh yeah, we, there was about five of us that had to go get dogs. And they walked us around the kennels and, and they kept this, the sergeant kept telling us about this one dog, Adis last handler, was the meanest son of a bitch anybody ever saw. And I just kept my mouth shut. And as these guys picked their dogs, I was the last guy. And they walked up and this was Lobo. And um, he had, nobody even wanted to groom this dog. He had just patches of cotton all over his hair. <laughs> anyway, but he hadn't been out in so long. When he saw that leash, he wagged his butt and I was his from that moment on. So I did a tour in Thailand in Karai. And three weeks into my tour, I went into the first sergeant's office and I signed up to go to Vietnam, which is where I was really wanting to go. And I got my wish. And uh, they sent me to Phan Rang. And um, that was like the 12th of October, 1969. And that's when I went to um, Tan Sanut and I had three days in Saigon with another buddy of mine who was going to um, Benoit. And I got to see Saigon. I got to, you know, see some of the people and experience a little bit about Vietnam. And then, but uh, one thing I wanted to mention was when I first flew in, it was nighttime when we flew over into Tan Sanut. And of course, this is, I forget, this might have been a Flying Tigers flight. You know, it was a commercial airliner. And we're flying around the base and I'm seeing all this H&I, which I didn't know it was that. I just saw tracers going all over the place. Uh, flares everywhere, like three or four sides of the base, you know, this, it was just amazing, you know, it was like, okay, this is Vietnam, we're going, we didn't do that shit in Thailand, I never discharged my weapon on, on post, uh, we didn't have concertina wire there, we just had four strands of barbed wire, not even more than one row, just one row, and some trip flares, which the rabbits seem to love to trip, anyway, so getting into, to Vietnam was kind of a trip, and then you learn some things, you know, it's like why they had uh, chain link over the bus windows so that they couldn't throw hand grenades into the window. You know, it's like, okay, this is Vietnam. Welcome to Vietnam, dude. And, and it wasn't over. So I reported the first sergeant at Phan Rang when I arrived there and I had flown in a little caribou, one of those little caribou planes that was shaking all over. You know, could, couldn't see the guy next to you on occasion when they were turning. Anyway. So I walked into the first sergeant's office and he took my orders and he looked at me 
And he said it three times before I got what he was actually saying. He says, Sergeant, you're out of uniform. And I'm like, and I realized I'm an airman first class. I had two stripes. And so he's handing me my stripes and congratulated me. He says, showed me where to get them stowed on. So I reported to Fan Rang as a sergeant. And then I met the guys. And there was, I think, four dogs available at the time. They kept telling me, get mountain, get mountain. And so I did. And he was awesome. He wasn't the big, he was a big dog, but he wasn't the biggest. But he was well-behaved. The, um, the gentleman who had him before me, I never really got to meet him, but I had spoken to him several times over the phone, had done a fantastic job working with Mountain and just like I didn't hardly have to do a thing. That was Eddie Matthews, the late Eddie Matthews. Excuse me. I'm very sad to think about him. Excuse me. It's hard. Anyway, he did a fantastic job and Mountain was even an off-leash dog. I walked him off-leash a lot of times out there. And um, it was interesting, my tour. Um, I always felt it was like I was being on a, I was a ball on a roulette wheel. There were 67, I think, believed little spots to be in. And every night they spun the wheel and my little ball would land somewhere. It could land in Bravo or Golf or Hotel or Delta or Juliet. And it was kind of interesting. The first post I had was a walkout post and I wonder, if they didn't do that with all the first timers when they first came in, is send them on a, out to Delta on a, with a walkout, walk out of the kennels there. Um, but anyway, um, and I like to walk. That was one of the things that I really enjoyed about being a canine handler and the fact that I love dogs. And that goes back to my childhood. When I was 10 years old, my mother married uh, my stepfather who had a huge German Shepherd named Lightning. And he was fantastic. He was a great dog. The, the guy even had no back seats in his car, just a bed for this dog. And that's how uh, he was. And he was a, a letter carrier and an absolute dog lover. And uh, then I, I fell in love with dogs. And uh, he would do things in his route. He would um, find a dog astray or a mis-abused uh, dog or whatever, he'd bring them home and he would find homes for them. And that was kind of heartbreaking for me because I'd come, uh, you know, I'd fall in love almost immediately with almost any dog you could bring home. And then I'd come home from school and the dog's gone. So anyway, but I got to love dogs. And that was one of the reasons I volunteered for canine. And that was the biggest thing with me was the dogs. And I got to say in my tour, while I was on that roulette wheel, while my radio was talking about sentry uh, dog alerts and mortars and rockets and whatever, I was never around. I mean, it was just like I was avoiding everything, but I counted incidents. Now these are recorded incidents. And during my time, there were 38 recorded incidents were different different things, you know, sappers and whatever. And um, but there was a lot of unrecorded ones. 
and one the one unrecorded one that I know about was on um, 22nd of January 1970, which was the Tet. And at midnight, I was walking the Bravo Road, right where the POL was, where all those big tanks of JP4 and gasoline and everything was. And right at the stroke of midnight, a green five-star cluster burst right over my head. And I was like, okay, this is it. So right on the other side of the road is kind of a ditch. The mountain, I went into the ditch. I held him down. I took my car off safety and I laid down and I just laid over, looking over that road, waiting for him to come. And nothing happened. And I was listening to the radio. Well, something was happening. I can't remember what might've been Juliet area that night. So something did happen, but nothing really big. You know, some shots were fired. Um, I don't know where to go from here, Tom. <laughs> well, I, I, I find it kind of interesting. Uh, you and I both uh, are very similar. When I went to uh, my first base for security police, uh, they had posters up for canine. Like you, I was raised with a German Shepherd. My dad brought home a, a CNI dog that had failed. And uh, I was five years old, and it was not much more than a pup. And uh, we grew up together. I had him until I was 16 years old, until he passed away. And uh, so when I went in and saw that poster uh, for canine, it just seemed like a logical thing for me. And then I went right into OJT. And, and the question I guess I have for you and your OJT, because like you, they just gave me a dog. And by the way, we had a dog there named Lobo that was meaner than snot. And I kind of wonder if that ain't the dog you ended up with over there. But um, I got a dog named Rondo and went out to post. Nobody really explained anything to me other than you're between this spot and this spot. Um, I didn't know how to read a dog. You know, they didn't really explain all that stuff to me. I didn't get that until, I don't know, six, eight months later when I went to Lackland Air Force Base for formal training. And, and then actually learned how to read a dog. So is that similar to your on the job training? Um, yeah, we have the traveling school come up to us in, at Pease Air Force Base. And so we did it on the base. So uh, it was two guys that was sent up and one of them, now I mentioned a Sergeant, Tech Sergeant Fink. He was the kennel master when I arrived at Fan Rang. So I got to see Sergeant Fink again. And uh, of course, Bob Dragic was my flight chief when I arrived. But I was seasoned by then. When I got to Vietnam, I'd already done a tour in Thailand. And I got to tell you, I actually had quite a few incidents in Thailand. Thailand was uh, a lot different. It was a different country. And, it was, uh, and I was kind of expecting similar when I was kind of like bewildered when I got to Vietnam because there was no jungle. You know, we had a jungle. I mean, literally, it was a jungle around us. What kind um, of incidents did you have in Thailand? Oh, um, one night, um, it was a far. It turned out to be a farmer who was hunting rabbits, and he had a gun, and he came up to the wire, and I don't know if his dog or whatever tripped a flare, and so I went over there, and. Um, 
and I found out, I realized he was a farmer hunting. His rifle was like some antique thing. It was huge. Anyway, so that was like one thing, but you know, it gets your heart going. You see a guy in, in you know, it was just the, you know, just the flare light from the burning flare on the ground, lighting this guy up. And he's like, you know, he was like startled. I think it scared the shit out of him. And I knew just enough time to realize that he was hunting and it, he didn't mean to do that. So that was one incident. And then one night I, they had a post that was between the active runway and the taxiway. And um, Lobo, man, he started pulling me. And it was like, what's going on? What's going on? And I noticed that the lights on the runway started blinking out. So I got down on my knees and looked and it looked like the devil himself was standing in the middle of the runway, the active runway. And what it was, was a Brahma bull that had been a gift to the King of Thailand from Lyndon B. Johnson. There were two of them on the Thai Air Force Base, which we shared by, with a, a barbed wire fence. And he went through the gate or something, got out, and he's standing in the middle of the runway. And Lobo wants to eat this thing. I want to just like get the hell out of there. So anyway, here comes uh, a 130, C-130 comes pulling up and they're getting at the end of the runway, they're, they're going to take off. So I get on the radio to CSC and, and I tell them that, well, first I said it was a water buffalo because that's really what I thought it was at first. I said, there's a, and they go, that's a negative. And I go, that's affirmative, I'm looking at it. You know. So anyway, they stopped the aircraft, they sent a truck out and there was like a dozen Thai guards in the back of this truck and they had folding chairs and they went after this bull, chasing him off the runway. So they lost him in the jungle somewhere between the, the active runway and the Thai Air Force Base. Anyway, and so they called for illumination and I popped my first flare, hurt my damn hand and I had to put it at a, such a steep angle too. It was like, holy shit, I've never done that before. I really was whacking it. Anyway, so it did it. They got this thing back in. So that was cool. Yeah, there was a couple other little things, but nothing, you know, nothing life-threatening. Just heart pounding. When you were at Fan Ranch, uh, right at the end of the runway was a post and it was cut off by a creek. You remember that? There was, you, yes, I do. Either side could get to you. There was a little bridge there. Yeah. Crick. Yeah. That was in the Bravo area, I think. Or no, right at the end of Juliet, like between, towards the main gate where the army set up. Yep. Between yeah. that there and the strip gate. Yeah. Yeah. And I had had uh, an intrusion there. I, my dog alerted, um, early on in the evening, probably about midnight. And uh, I had the lights behind me from the runway. So I just laid down and just watched my dog here all standing up on his back and he was in a deep low growl. So I knew whatever I had was close, but there was no way to get really any support in there. Like uh, if you were on a normal post, you could call for a time check and the guys on either side of you would know that you had an alert. They might start moving that direction. Where in this case, it wouldn't have done me any good. So all night long, my dog just growled. Nothing came across. And about 
4.35 as we were getting relief from post, I walked out to the road, muzzled the dog, emptied my gun, um, and was standing there. And all of a sudden, I seen this big cluster of bodies coming toward me. And I yelled, Dung Lai, and they answered back, U.S. Army, blah, 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 blah. So they came up to the road, and I scared, I said, you scared the hell out of me. I thought you were VC. I, I was getting ready to fire a flare at you. He said, if you'd have shot anything at us, we'd have mowed you down. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't seem like very good relationships no. at the time. But, uh, you know, those kind of incidents, I don't know that any of those ever got recorded. Yeah. 67. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot I know that happened that didn't get recorded. When I looked at that list that I have, I know a lot of stuff didn't get recorded. We, so had, we had rockets. We had rockets hitting the base multiple times. Yeah, you were there during some pretty heavy time. Yeah. But never involved in any incidents. No, I was just on the other, I was just always away. They had a, a time when the, our, our well got captured. I don't know if you heard about that. Uh, our well was off, it was off towards the strip somewhere. It was off base and it got captured for like two or three days before they took it back. We were brushing our teeth with fresca or beer. They, and the, the thing was they turned the water because they did have water some water they were rationing it and they turned it on like 10 o'clock in the morning when we were sleeping you know after i mean 10 o'clock i was dead yeah so that was some more water for a couple of days yeah they had it for a couple of days it, it seemed like a couple of days before we got our water back where they told us we can shower again you know bob dragage talked about starting um kind of an assault team or a strike team are you familiar with what he did? I do, I do. He, you know, I don't know how Bob did it. He responded to every incident. He, I mean, every single one that, that he could, if two would happen at the same time, well, that was just too bad. But, you know, he saw so much more than any of us. You've listened I got to, to visit him and Chi up there in Alaska. That was, that was the highlight of that seven weeks I took up there. You you listened to his podcast? Oh, I did. I have, yes. Yeah, he talks about some very interesting things. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of stuff. I may go back and have him do another podcast just because he talked, if you remember, he would say uh, there was this incident with XYZ and then he'd say, I'll tell you later. And then yeah. we never got to later, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. So, uh, I'm going to go back and write all those incidents down and then probably re-record his uh, one, like a fourth episode kind of thing. Yeah. So when you came home from Vietnam, where'd you go? Um, Beale Air Force Base, California. I had like uh, 10 months, I think, left to do. And they sent quite actually several handlers from Fan Rang. All We all came back at the same time. And they only had 12 dogs at Beale. So there were no dogs. So I ended up in security. I ended up um, as entry controller for the SR-71 area. Wow. That was kind of cool. I mean, that was that was pretty awesome. The SR-71, yeah. that was an amazing airplane. 
That, that's it, that's it was like a rocket taken off. Yeah, it would, it would leak. It would be smoking and leaking LOX all, you know, liquid oxygen all the way to where it was, and they'd have a big parade behind it, all these mucky mucks and trucks, and the guys are dressed like astronauts got in them, and literally they lift these guys in there, and then they would like shoot down the runway. They would tilt up at about an 88 degree angle and just blast off in a space. They hit those rockets and they were just gone. I got, I got to I got, meet a couple of the pilots, which was kind of cool. I got to guard one and I got to watch it take off the next morning. Uh, it came in crippled up at Ellsworth. Ah. And um, so they needed a guard and I was off that night. So they called me in and they posted me on the door of the uh, hangar and it was already in the hangar. And uh, so I'm looking through the door. Somebody was in there working on it. So I opened up the door and I walked in and I said, so what do you do? And the guy said, well, let me give you a piece of advice. Back out that door before you go to jail. <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 I back back out again. And, and then the next morning when they got done working on it, uh, they had a KC-135 takeoff, I don't know, three, four hours ahead of time to refuel him down in Oklahoma. And then uh, then it took off, just like you said. It was just like a rocket taking off. That was my only pleasure. Yeah. That was kind of a, an honor, actually, to be that person to, to, you know, to let people in, you know, in and out. And I got to meet a lot of people who worked on them. It was pretty interesting. So when you get out after... Where did you go? With pardon me, when I got out of the service, yep, I actually fell in love with the area, the Northern California area, and I um, moved around a lot in that area, up in the woods. Lived in a teepee when I went to college, and lived in a teepee. It was kind of cool. Did, uh, did my Jack Kerouac thing in the in 1976? A girl and I bought a 1959 Plymouth station wagon and went up through Oregon and all the way to the, uh, let's see, through Illinois, down to the south and, and ended up selling the cars in Mississippi, had a job at a, uh, making uh, for, for Flinton Industries, working in pipes for uh, nuclear destroyers. I did that for about a week and that was it. I'm not going to do that anymore. But uh, it was a long time before I found my niche, which was drafting. But uh, and then I had a really good career drafting and technical illustrator. I worked for Boeing. That was really cool. Anyway, yeah, and that, that was awesome. pretty interesting. Most of us went into law enforcement. Yeah, a lot of people did. I just really wasn't cut into cut out for it. I never really was. I was in for the dogs, truthfully. The, the, you know, I got thrown into the security police, literally. I had no choice. It's like, these are your orders, dude. That's like, kind of interesting. Okay. I, I had wanted to be an air traffic controller. Yeah. And um, when I went in, I, I flunked my uh, color eye exam ah. horribly. I mean, I couldn't pick out one number. So, uh, they said there was no way I was going to bring aircraft in. So yeah. they said, you got two choices, security police or, or cook. Oh, God, you took a better one. That was a <laughs> fact. <laughs> I don't want to kill anybody, so I'll become an air policeman. Or be killed if you're a cook. 
<laughs> Those cooks weren't very popular. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> so I, I stayed in law enforcement for, uh, so I went in 66, got out 69, went right into, I mean, I wasn't out of work more than a day. I went from the Air Force to Rapid City Police Department uh, the next day. And- uh, South Dakota? Yeah. I was up there during the American Indian riots and oh. the city flood and all the good things. And then uh, I had a father-in-law get ill and I went down and helped him for a couple of years on a farm. And then went back in law enforcement until about 83. And then I went into IT security. And then I, rest of my career was IT security. So were you, you like a county? Were you county or, or city? Oh, city. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. Uh, you know, Rapid City, we were pretty uh, unit driven. Yeah. I, was, I started the canine unit there. Oh, how so cool. I was a bug handler the whole time I was there. And then I made the uh, state riot team. Uh, during the AIM riots, I was on the riot team. Uh, during the flood, I did search and rescue for uh, drowning victims um, and, and uh, cadavers. Yeah, incredibly. And uh, uh, when I moved into Nebraska, I went back into law enforcement and ended up becoming chief of police. And, and that sucked because a lot of politics in that. So I went back to school and, and learned the program and then went into security. IT. And that was early on. That was when probably the worst uh, IT risk was a floppy disk being brought to work and downloaded into a hard drive or something. So it wasn't an actual internet that time. Yeah, so, yeah so. that's what happened with drafting because I was drawing and I loved it with, you know, drawing with my hands, ink on mylar, whatever. And all of a sudden they went to computers. And it was like, oh my God. And it was like, well, you just had to do it if you wanted to keep in the field. So I spent uh, the rest of my career on computers. Um, I retired at 58, which was um, pretty cool. Yeah. But ended up um, working harder, <laughs> not working, because um, I, um, I started painting. And I did that like 11 hours a day. And arthritis finally got to me after a while. And that's when I started writing in like 2016. So, were, you, um, were you a pretty good writer? I mean, is that something? You know, I never, I never gave it much thought. It's really weird. I, I did write, um, but I didn't write fiction. I just wrote blogs and whatever, you know. And, I, and it was after my wife died from pancreatic cancer that I had written a, a story about her, about our, our life together, because we had 28 good years together. And, um, and I sent it out to all of her friends. And I got so much feedback of people saying, you know, how come you're not writing? You should be writing. And so I started writing. I had all these stories in my head and I still do. Right now I have two going at the same time. One's taking place in Belize, and it involves a, an alien artifact left here uh, a few thousand years ago, and in Africa, 
another entity that came here 10 million years ago that is now raising havoc in Africa. So, so I'm, do you I'm get into that information from research or do you just... Oh, I research all the time. There's all kinds of facts in my books. Like I just wrote a short story because um, I like short stories and I have another book coming out just in the next couple months, it'll be out. Um, and the story is about a, a bugle that is cursed. And, uh, and I researched, I wanted to end the story where a time traveler saves the last person. And I found out when Miles Davis, where, where he grew up and I got him to get the trumpet from a hawk shop. And just before he was gonna blow his one note that would kill him, time travelers come and they take and they exchange the bugle for another one and save his ass. But I had to research, we you know all the timing, get it right. And in my book, The Siddhartha Formula, I had to look at dates and whatever because I have some noter, noted personalities in the book. Chill Wills, um, uh, Jim Jones, Reverend Jim Jones is in there. I believe I, I'm a believer in reincarnation. Third, a third of the planet does. It's too bad everybody doesn't. We'd be picking up after everything because no one would be coming back. But anyway, um, that book is based on on a fictional character who discovers a formula that proves uh, uh, reincarnation and is able. To, he's able to find these bad genes and chase down serial killers. So it's kind of cool. Send people after them and they tag them. And as soon as they touch the people, they turn into briefly the person they were, like Jim Jones or whatever. And then they just turn to their basic formula, which was mostly water. They just flush out of their clothes. <laughs> so anyway, that's a book I've already published. It's out there. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I had a dystopian to... novel about Oregon in eighteen in in twenty fifty nine when there's hardly any water. Water is is life, and that is the monetary. You know, you know, money doesn't mean anything now. It's credits, water credits. That's going to probably come true here pretty quick. <laughs> we we can only hope yeah. that they, we fix this. So one more, one more topic. Uh, any PTSD? Any, any? Oh God, yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the weird thing. It happened uh, right around the first Gulf War. Um, and I didn't know what it was at first. It was actually my wife who um, diagnosed me and sent me to the doctor. <laughs> anyway, I was in the grocery line, and one of these people that I don't know got too close to me. And I had this um, unbelievable panic attack. I don't know what, where it came from. And I was just like, ready, just, just drop my credit card and run out the door. I mean, it was just like, whoa. And I finally you know, took some breaths and I got asked the guy to move away. And I was able to get my groceries and get home. And I told my wife what happened, but that, that's not when, and it happened some other times. It happened on the when I was driving. I had to pull off the road once and just sit there. I had a panic attack because somebody was tailgating me, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And it's like, and I didn't know what all this was at first, and then it um, 
they had me on Wellbutrin for, I don't know, several years, but that kind of, now I have cannabis and that helps. That helps immensely. But I have to plan everything. If I'm gonna to go to an appointment, I have to plan my route that I'm gonna take. I still have to do that. I still have to, uh, you know, I don't know, it's weird. I can't. You ever talk to Bob Mays about his? Uh, no, I haven't. No, I haven't talked to Bob. He and Bill Fisher uh, go to the VA. Is that where you go? Not to go anywhere. Oh, you don't go anywhere. I just deal with it. I just deal with it. It's not, you know, like a fork falls and I go, ah, you know what I mean? I'm over it though. In seconds, once I realize it is a fork that fell, you know what I mean? Do you, how about you? Have you ever experienced? Yeah, I, I went through quite a bit. When I first came home, um, I drank a lot. Um, I would fight a lot. I'd go, the, the thing that saved me is I was a cop. Right. So I wouldn't get arrested. Usually they'd come take me out of the bar or wherever and yeah. take me home. Um, so I went through that for, I don't know, four or five years. And uh, my sergeant finally told me if I didn't... Uh, quit drinking that I would lose my job and probably my family. He said, you're, you're pushing the limits. So uh, that's when I went out uh, to the farm and farm for a couple of years and, and uh, dried out and uh, got over it. Yeah. Now, see, when I first got back after I got out, I didn't realize what it was, but I had sort of a self-destructive thing and I didn't fight but I rode my motorcycle like crazy until I uh, saw I wrecked it at hundred miles an hour. I uh, came out of it, I, I don't know how, I was only wearing a t-shirt and a pair of blue jeans. I wasn't even wearing shoes or a helmet. Wow. But my elbows and my belt buckle and uh, one of my legs got pretty raw. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had, I don't know. And I got over that, a woman helped me on that one. Well, that's what uh, Bob accredits his uh, direction to turn was his wife, Pam. And then he went to the VA and he's been in therapy uh, for several years now. And, and Bill Fisher just recognized his probably two years ago. And uh, then he's, he went through about six, eight weeks of therapy. Yeah. But I just had a doctor out, uh, I was president of the Vets Club here, and uh, they use hyperbaric chambers for uh, PTSD. Hmm. And it's a nonprofit, and it's a free program to vets who have PTSD. So it's kind of an uh, interesting uh, program. So uh, what is the hyperbaric chamber like? What is that? It's like uh, if you were a scuba diver. Okay. Oh, is yeah. it like where uh, you immerse yourself in water and uh, sensory deprivation kind of thing? Or yeah, well, they put you in a tank, which is oxygen, right? And it and it re reverses that deep dive where you come up too fast. Or oh, I see. Oh, I see. It's like a, a one of those chambers they put you in if you have the bends. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I used to watch Sea Hunt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. And he said they've had a tremendous success with those. 
Um, so they had what I found interesting, the guy that spoke to us said, has a Down syndrome daughter. And he said it actually helped her. It, it yeah. got her speech to be better. It got uh, really? her uh, reading ability to be better. Yeah. So I don't know if it was just the oxygen to the brain. I don't know what causes that, but right. it was interesting to, to hear that. Well, we know oxygen really does uh, help the brain. And the more you get, the better you are to a point. You know? Yeah. And she's a CPAP patient because she does have a lack of oxygen. She doesn't breathe a lot at night, stops. So that's a, probably a lot of her issues. I remember one, oh, oh, I know. I want to talk about pink eye. I don't know if pink eye was there when you were there. It was a, it's a big spotlight and it had different types of uh, light uh, functions. And one of them was like an ultraviolet. It, ha, it, it shined an ultraviolet light and you can only see it with, with certain uh, binoculars. And he would shine it. He would come and shine it on your post and let you look at, out there and see what was there. It was pretty cool. Uh, I got to know the guy because he's also the guy that had these light, the LIDAL units. You, you didn't have those, I bet, when you were there. We they had were, a, a large light we could call in. Yeah, that was probably like pink eye. Yeah. But we had them every... I don't know, 200 yards or 300 yards, there was one of these motors with two spotlights on it, just like you rent from in Ingerness or whatever it is. Yeah, no, we didn't have yeah. that. Yeah, and they were awful. Well, I learned how to turn them off. <laughs> and of course, then it would bring Mac. He would come out to, to turn it back on, find out why it quit. <laughs> but it would always take him a long time and I'd have some nice darkness out there. But I, you know, I'd like to walk my post. I really did. That was one of the things. So but, would these lights light up the whole post then? Well, no, they're just like a spotlight, but you could only see the light with the binoculars. In other words, if you were in the light, if they were shining on you, you wouldn't know it. So you're, oh. if you're a Vietnamese running around out there and he shined light on you, you wouldn't know you were being spotted. If some, because somebody who had binoculars watching that spotlight that only that range of light would show. And, and of course he had a regular spotlight too. He could just blind your ass, you know, just like a Hollywood spotlight. And that's what it looked like, one of those, that he could aim it. We had a light uh, up on the hill. Right right on right big by. giant hill, the yeah. big giant hill, yeah. And that was just a bright light that I, that right. I remember. Right. And we could call in and say, we're on Julia, Juliet, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so many clicks and, and he would shine that light out there and then we could see uh, out of that area. I used the flare normally. Yeah, it's what we like, mortar flares. Yeah. We call for mortar illumination all the time. Yeah, it just seemed to work better. Yeah. I mean, it was daylight for like 60 seconds. It's cool. Yeah, I, I experienced uh, three different uh, situations where I fired and was fired at. Uh, but that was it. Other than that, you know, it was our dogs would alert every now and then and we'd uh, go out and, and it would disappear like they'd back off or get out of the wind or, and that, that's something I think uh, I talk about it uh, a lot and I have talked about it with Bill and Craig and those, 
So our dogs had three basic senses. Right. Uh, smell, obviously, being number one. And then his hearing and then his sight. And the downfall to that was if you were on post and that wind was to your back and it was a pitch dark night and there were fighters or jets out there revving up their engines, you really were with a dog that was useless to you at that point. Yeah. And it was your your responsibility to protect. Well, I felt that many times, Tom, many times did I have that. I mean, there were nights I remember when you could put your hand in front of it, not in front of your face and couldn't see it. Yep. You couldn't see your dog. You just followed the leash, the sound of him. And But yeah, I know what, what you mean about the jets revving up anywhere along the Juliet area or that's down there by the back gate in Delta. Yeah, yeah it get pretty noisy. And, they, and if they had the floodlights on, it get pretty bright behind you, which always made me nervous too. Yeah. And we, we had some interesting things occur on the base. You know, the pipeline blew a bunch of times. You know about that? Did that happen? We had we had a pipeline that went out to the coast. It pumped all the fuel. And it looked like a fire fountain. It was so cool. But, you know, it was like, uh, they blew up the, we'd lose a million barrels of fuel. <laughs> and then uh, they had the Vietnamese repair it. That was something. And then the, a few times we got to take the dogs to the beach, and that was awesome. Yeah, I never really did, that. did you ever do that? No. Oh man, that was so fun. The dogs loved it. We had to keep them on leash and muzzled because we were all around each other. So they'd pack us in a whole truck and a deuce and a half and take us down there. It was so much fun. I got a picture of, of one of the runs one time. This motorcyclist was coming up behind us, Vietnamese guy, and I don't remember who was on the end, but he raised his car up, and that guy went back up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was some. Um, and uh, you know, I met a lot of friends, and um, you know, I still and and a lot of friends in the VDHA meeting, guys, uh, scout dog handlers, and. Um, Norm Ream, he's one of the first guys I met. And uh, he was army handler. The sentry dog program, it was like a shark on a leash, man. It was usually a well-behaved one, but. <laughs> you know, I don't know when sentry dogs ended. You know, when did they go to more of a patrol dog? That, it was happening, it, the, it was happening while I was still in. And I got out in 71. It was, they, they were changing men. They were, in, right about then, they were doing more and more uh, patrol dogs, phasing out the sentry dogs. But I, don't, I think it was after Vietnam was out over, I think the last guys were probably there in 74 or so. Yeah. So 65 is when the first sentry dog handlers went to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And then 74 would, when they returned. So uh, almost 10 years. Yeah. But then, then after that, I think we we have uh, evolved into the patrol dog program. Right. And uh, which I think is probably a lot better program. I, I'm not so sure the sentry dog program was all that good. When I went to dog school, I was able to penetrate almost every post. I just I would crawl, belly crawl in, I'd lay there and I'd just listen. And you know how handlers are, they're talking to your dog, and I could listen to them, figure out where they were at. And, figure out where the wind was blowing from and I could sneak in. And I had 
better knowledge than most intruders did. But uh, yeah, I, I think the patrol dog program is probably a far better program today. And the dogs are far better trained. I often wonder though too, how much that was the handler, not the dog. You know, the, the handler not reading his dog right. Uh, one incident is on the Star Trek movie, The Voyage Home, when they're trying to steal some energy from that USS Enterprise. Uh, the sentry, uh, the dog, the, the Navy guy is walking around. He wants to go down the stairs to see who's down there and the, sentry, and the dog handler pulls him away. And that always bugged me in that movie. I don't know if you saw that. but No, but I... I bet you're right. I mean, I think that was probably a lot of, you know, the dogs. Yeah, are pretty the, dog, the dog is, I don't see the dog as fallible as the human, <laughs> especially now because I, you know, I have dogs. I have a, a Shiba right now, a little Shiba Inu. He's four going on five. He's awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I'd, I'd say that a lot when I'm talking to groups that it, it usually isn't the dog that's the problem. It's almost always the handler. And I, I think that's even in some cases today, even with the patrol yeah. dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, until the dog can actually talk. But I'm amazed at what the things I'm seeing, you know, cameras on the dogs, remote, remote voice control, um, body armor. Yeah. You know, I mean, serious shit. <laughs> yeah, they're well protected today with body armor. And uh, like you said, they, they have remote cameras, so you can cut your dog loose now. And, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they could let that dog go in the building by itself. Yeah. Well, even when I was a police dog handler, we still were six feet away from that dog. Right. So when he went in that building, I was right behind him. Right. And uh, today, you don't have to do that. Today, it's all with cameras and voice over remote. And yeah. It is amazing. Nice. And, um, you know, the Belgian Malinois, I mean, they're phasing out German Shepherds, it looks like, too. Yeah. I mean, the, the Belgian Malinois seem to be the one of the major dogs they're using now for for that type of dog. Now they're far using more, far more energy, uh, stays alert uh, all day. I mean, you watch them at the border down here, those dogs never stop. Yeah, they're going all the time. Yeah, I remember so, the yeah. um, the VDHA thing we had in San Antonio, where we went out to the base and got to uh, spend time with the uh, Department of Defense and go through the whole canine program with them. Um, saw a Belgian Nawa couldn't weigh more than forty five pounds, knock a man down who had to be one hundred and sixty pounds or more, and uh I was also impressed with their new suits that they got. They only weigh like 28 pounds or something. You know, those big old bulky burlap things we used to have to get in in the heat of the day. Oh my God, I remember that so many times. And I mean, I always try to keep my balance when those dogs were coming at you. But uh, if you got knocked down, you were a turtle. <laughs> yeah, you were pretty vulnerable too. Yeah. Your head was open and your crotch. Yeah, and you couldn't get up on your own for shit. I mean, yeah. But yeah, those guys, that was pretty impressive. I was impressed with that demonstration. The dog was pretty, pretty good.
Yeah, really fast. I've invited uh, both law enforcement, uh, Border Patrol, and the air base out here to demonstrate their dogs. And, and they're so much better trained. I saw a young lady uh, handler uh, send her dog after a sleeve, and the dog got about halfway there, and she sat down, and that dog just barely flopped on the ground. And I looked at that policeman, and I said, if I had sent my dog after somebody and told him down, it had been after he eat that guy. That's when it could happen. <laughs> uh, so I have a safe story. When I was in that training school, the, the traveling school, they had a situation where a guy ran off and he dropped to sleep. And I was so sure my dog was not going to do anything but chase that guy. And I ran and I ran and I ran and that dog stopped dead on that sleeve. I went head over heels on my ass. I just went meh, flipped over completely. He like, just wanted that sleeve. He knew what he wanted. Yeah, he'd stop dead. He was an 88 pound dog too, King. <laughs> Damn, I learned my lesson. He, you know, he was, he, is, he was a stateside dog. He'd only been trained, you know what I mean? I don't know. I didn't see that in Vietnam. It was a lot different. Yeah. Yeah, they they were trained and, and well worked. And, you know, my dog had been there for a couple of years, so he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Which made it easier on me, that's for sure. Yeah, see, I brought my dog from Texas, Lobo. He was green. He was green. He was he had never been anywhere but Texas. He was a new inductee. I um I actually wrote the the people who donated him and got an, I think it was a nine page letter it's, it's um, hopefully it's going to get published soon in one of the dog book uh, dog uh, blogs that's out there I'll get you a copy yeah do that that's an yeah. yeah it was awesome story about how these people uh, got this dog Lobo and they had they were service people in the Air Force and they were going to go to Iran and uh, they couldn't take the dog with them. So the only choice was basically to donate him to the Air Force, which they did. And that's how I got him. Wow, so I'll have to share good. that letter with you. It's really awesome. Yeah, I'd like to see it. Yeah. And then a few years ago, the daughter of the lady said, uh, our dog, uh, you, you had our dog in Thailand. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I guess I did. And I sent her everything. I had all the pictures. Because I did take a lot of pictures. I do have a lot of pictures in Vietnam, but I took a lot of a lot of pictures. It's just their their memory. Tim, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story, and thank you for listening to the War Dogs podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review, as I always enjoy feedback from listeners.